Welcome to NHASED Spotlight, our regular podcast from the New Hampshire Association for Supervision and Curriculum Development. My name is Bill Carosa, your host for these podcasts and also co-executive director of NHASED. Before I introduce our guest today, I want to remind our listeners of our next conference. This year, we're conducting in partnership with the New Hampshire Association of School Principals. We have uh, Jim Knight coming in January 26th with uh, seven success factors for great instructional coaching. I've been saying that Jim Knight's sort of the coach of coaches. So we have a good crowd coming in, but plenty of room and space left. So uh, if you want to register, simply head to uh, nhased.org, and we'd love to, to have you there. Well, our guest today is Dr. Gene Kearns. He's currently the chief academic officer for Renaissance, and you know Renaissance from uh, Star Assessment. That's how I know Renaissance. And also years ago, we used Accelerated Reader uh, at a school I worked in, too, uh, and many other products as well. Gene has a, a really rich background. Gene's a bit of a renaissance guy, if you don't mind me using that term. <laughs> He's a it's been, it's been supervisor said of academic services once upon a time for the Milford School District in Delaware. Also a faculty member at the University of Delaware. He's been a teacher and administrator in both uh, the state of Delaware and also the Commonwealth of Virginia. He has a bachelor's degree and master's degree from Longwood University in Virginia and holds his doctorate in education from the University of Delaware. He's also the co-author of three books, Informative Assessment, When It's Not About a Grade, Unlocking Student Talent and Literacy Reframed. Gene, thanks so much for taking time with us today. Thanks, Bill. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. Now, Gene, your experience really is vast. You've seen trends, as I have, come and go in education. I think we're at an interesting juncture right now. I, I, we know more about brain research and, and cognitive uh, science right now, and we're meeting those two, the pandemic issue at the same time, sort of as as we know so much more about learning. But in talking to you, as we have before, you have so much hope for education and, and for teaching in general. Talk about where that hope comes from and and why you're you're bullish, I think, on education at this point. Well, I am. And, and I think that hope does come from continually new insights. I mean, you put your finger on one part, which is we know more from cognitive science than we've ever known before. You know, a lot of that has been driven by brain imaging technology, which simply didn't exist. Now it's opened up an entire world for what we can do in terms of, you know, the brain science side of the house. I think the other piece that we've also got to acknowledge is um, the amount of information, just data points we have about students as they practice in activities, our assessment data points. I was actually just working on a, a presentation from someone for someone else, and I was looking back at a report that was about 25 years ago, and it was talking about, oh, look, we had 50,000 kids and 3 million reading records on them across the entire school year. Uh, that same amount of information I can collect in a week. Uh, so, you know, we, with everything moving into the cloud, uh, things coming together, we simply have a whole lot more information than we've ever had before. Uh, and so you get all these conversations of learning sciences now mining that information uh, for the insights that it offers. I know one thing we talked about in our elementary school when I was a principal is we seem to have so much data. We, we're able to collect it really easily. Yeah. And you know what I'm going to say, what the other side of this uh, question is, but we don't always do something with it. How can we bridge that gap between the amount of data that we collect, the great research that's out there, and actually putting it into practice in a you know six and a half hour school day? Yeah. Well, I think you're right. You put your finger on part of the challenge. Our, our, our challenge used to be we didn't have a lot of information. Right. Now we have the opposite challenge. 
I think the greatest challenge we have now is asking the right questions, uh, focusing our attention on those things that just absolutely uh, matter the most. So, uh, you know, at, at Renaissance, you know, I mean, back to school, 17 million assessment records come in. We have no shortage of information. The hardest thing is knowing what's the right question to ask and, and what are the metrics to correlate uh, with or against one another to see what the relationship is. Um, and I think you put your finger on as well when you said, you know, we have a, a limited amount of time. There's no point in us doing all the activities that we do if we're not going to meet on and review the data. I mean, you know, one of our big assessment or big product lines is assessment. And people will say, well, how often should I give the test? And my answer always is, if you're not going to meet and review the information generated from the test, then don't give it. There, there's no point in doing that. So, um, yeah, no shortage of data. It's just knowing the right questions, the right metrics. And, of course, that brings up another thing is our, our data literacy as educators is is really going up. That's a challenge. We've got to we got to learn like, you know, uh, learn to think more like psychometricians and statisticians. And we are lay people to that field. But there's a whole lot of people in roles like mine whose full-time job it is to kind of teach you the basics and walk you through this. This is what you can say based on this information, this is how far it goes, and this is what the limitations are, because research has limitations as well. Right. And I've spent enough time on the Renaissance website to know that there's some great resources right there. It's almost too much, right? I mean, as well as too yeah, much but, data, there's almost too much help out there, at least uh, on the web. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, if you're like me, I have the one or two folks or one or two groups that I really trust the most. Um, you know, there's too many, too many emails to subscribe to, too many, you know, roll-ups of information that get synthesized. But I find the one or two that I trust, and I pay close attention to them. And I, you know, I look at the rest of it as much as I can. But uh, you're right, things come at us so nonstop and so fast now. Uh, we need a little bit of filters on. You know, I probably miss some stories I should see, but I make my decisions and try to choose wisely. One of my friends jokes that for every podcast, I bring up the pandemic and the academic effects. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's too bad, but it is obviously a major factor. We saw the recent NAEP scores. And for those who don't know NAEP, that's, of course, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the nation's report card. It's, it's a pretty good standard, I think, um, that the uh, federal government, the National Council of Education Statistics, uh, looks at all the time. Bad news, pretty much, uh, yeah. recently. In a, in a short podcast, what are what's some advice or some hope you can give us that, assuming it's the pandemic, it's remote yeah. learning that caused it that we can catch up at some point? Well, um, I, I'd say a couple of things. Uh, one, we've been studying that as well. I mean, NAEP is such a powerful tool for for two reasons. One, it's the only thing that you get a sample of kids across the whole country. Uh, so with the variance of state tests, it's hard to do that national sample thing, but that does that. The other thing is, it's like the king of all things longitudinal. So they go to extensive efforts to equate that test and make sure that a scale score of, you know, 348 means exactly the same thing today that it meant 20 years ago and that you can make those longitudinal comparisons. So that's where they really perform. You know, the, the downside is NAEP is a snapshot that simply occurs, you know, uh, at a certain interval and it's, you know, at least a year over a year. Um, we've actually met. Uh, with the NAEP team. Um, and so we, we've done a report series called How Kids Are Performing. And we actually found something really interesting that does give me, well, a couple things that give me hope. Number one, it tends to be that during the average school year, 
it's typical that the second half of the school year is one of lower growth. That's a very consistent pattern across our test and others. And we saw that two years back. You know, so kids had really dropped in their performance, and then we were suffering through that pandemic year, and they dropped yet again when you looked at the second half of the school year. Last year, for the first time that I've ever seen it, we saw a, a school year that was consistent growth across the whole year, where the second half was no lower than the first half. And I tell you, the Nate people sat up in their chairs because I was I was presenting that to them one week before they were going to launch their uh, their their release of their information. Right. And one of the directors, she said to me, "So what that means is we're about to put out some information that's kind of bleak. And what you're telling me is kids probably got a little bit better after we took that snapshot." And I said, yeah. And she said, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so uh, in, in that sense, that makes me hopeful. But but here's the, here's the other thing. I mean, it's that meme, you know, where something ha- falls all apart and somebody says, well, that happened. Yeah, a pandemic. That happened. We have no control of that. What we are seeing is the areas that we have highlighted in our research as being the most impacted, for example, math more than reading. Yeah. Early grades reading took some real hits. Those first rounds of those reports, we were reporting that those were the impacts were. Things have gotten better. The areas that were the most impacted have had the largest rebound. That tells me teachers and administrators are focusing their attention. Now, there's more than we can do. We can't fix it all in one year. But a lot of the stuff that has happened, we have already mitigated that. So I think it, it's just a matter of saying it's just going to take a little bit longer view, <laughs> a little bit longer view. We are working back, but it's kind of like playing the arcade game whack-a-mole. You only have one plunger, and a bunch of moles are going to pop up. you got to hit as many as you can, and it's just going to take a while before we've whacked all those little guys back into place. It seems like, according to NAEP scores, special ed kids, strangely, maybe not so strangely, didn't drop maybe as much as some others, and some attribute that to the fact that special ed kids came in during Remote learning. Yeah. In a they lot were prioritized in many districts, yes. Right. So that's good news, right? And smaller settings. Uh, you know, I mean, we know, obviously, the small group, you know, tutoring and assistance is, you know, yields greater benefits. And so, uh, right. and, and, you know, that's an interesting dynamic because I'm sure the Nate people have gone through the same thing that I've gone. I mean, I've done, you know, 100 and some presentations on our, you know, our learning loss analysis. People always say, what caused that? And I always have to remind them, there's nothing about our research design that can prove causality. We can't tell you why any of these things happened. Uh, we can we can suggest some stories. So, you know, for example, I think, well, first of all, people said, well, why was math more impacted? My response is almost like, well, have you ever taken a math class? I mean, everything about it is sequential. So if you miss something, it's going to come back and bite you. But the other thing is early grades readers were so impacted. But, you know, kids coming into kindergarten and first grade, they're coming in with radically different experiences. Their parents kept them home. Had we not had a pandemic, they would have had more preschool, more Head Start, more socialization, more, you know, experience in those settings to, you know, sounds and patterns and letters and numbers. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think we can all, when we see the realities, we can all understand how those things happened. And again, I'm encouraged that the patterns that we're seeing in the data tell us people are finding this themselves. They are listening. They are responding and they are mitigating these impacts. It's just going to take a while. The old comparison of nature versus nurture. We think about that as educators and sometimes in our darker moments, bad days, maybe we think that nature has way too much influence on what we do, but I, doesn't it seem like, and maybe I'm totally glass half full here, but doesn't it seem like the whatever remote learning loss 
we attained or didn't attain was largely the result of more the nurture. They didn't get instruction. So in yeah. a way, it, it, it kind of proves that maybe teaching is pretty important. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, people looked at our data set because one of the things we were doing early on was we, we knew whether a child was testing inside of a school building because we know the, the UR, I mean, we, we know the, the, um, the meta addresses for those places. Right. So we could very quickly tell you, was this taken in the building or was this taken outside the building? Hmm. And we saw weird fluctuations in some of the outside uh, data. And, you know, miraculously, the young kids looked like they were outperforming, which probably means mom and dad were helping some. Right. But we also saw something interesting, and that was kids who were testing outside the building were exhibiting less growth. So, I mean, that goes back to the nurturing piece. They were being nurtured in school. So uh, there were some bumps and there were some things, but the general theme was if you were trying to look at a use case that says, I think being in person's better, there was a whole lot of indicators that would trend in favor of that. Right. Also, math went down more than, than reading, yeah. which I, the stereotype there is that uh, both parents and teachers, elementary yeah. teachers, are more comfortable with reading than with math. Is that true? Do you think to some extent? I think it's more, I think it's more in the parents. Uh, I mean, I think we've done a lot. I mean, the parents feel much more comfortable. Well, there's a couple of dynamics. Parents feel much more comfortable helping out with the reading stuff because it's more general to them. Uh, you know, the flip side is they're not going to teach phonics lessons. So if you were a young kid, you were probably disadvantaged. If you're an older kid, you got your support. Right, right. Uh, but I think, yeah, across the board, there's that lack of comfort around math beyond even just, you know, the earliest couple of grades. The parents didn't want to help with that. I also, I mean, it's like the probably my most overused citation. Stephen Pinker at MIT once said math is ruthlessly cumulative. Hmm. You know, every subject area is cumulative by some nature, but math, she is ruthless in the way that she behaves. If you miss something along the way, you're going to be cut down ruthlessly at some point. And so I think there's just an element of math as a subject area that created a dynamic where it was much more exposed. Uh, kids were much more able to self-teach, if you will, in reading. And if we, I mean, we, for example, we gave away free access to our digital library during pandemic just to make sure every kid around had a book. You know, the kids have something to read. And, and the research is very clear. Kids who are reading regularly you know, if they're beyond the first couple of grades of learning the mechanics of reading, they can do a lot of self-teaching. I mean, they, they just build up their, there's just no mathematical equivalent yeah. to that. Uh, and so kids just couldn't do the self-teaching in math that they could, you know, if they were being supported in any, at least a moderate amount of reading every day. Right. Not a lot of spiraling was going on in math at home of the no. curriculum where it no. would happen in a public school. Since you brought up reading, obviously a pretty important topic. Um, the science of reading is, I don't think the latest buzzword. Some people would say that though, certainly. Yeah. Um, it's you hot. I, yeah. You and I have been around a long time. I, I worked in, in the eighties and nineties, early nineties in probably New Hampshire's example of whole language. I mean, it was the whole language school. People used to visit us. We were doing really good things for a lot yeah. of kids, but there were probably a lot of kids that to use the federal term were, were sort of left behind. What do you think of this, the term, the science of reading and, and the impact, hopefully positive impact it's having on, on classrooms these days? 
Yeah, I mean, what what mystified me at first was where does it come from? Like, I was like, there, there's got to be an article, there's got to be a book. I, I, you I know, I told people I, I wanted the Genesis document, and I was writing my book, Literacy Refrained, as all that was happening, and right. uh, and I had to go out and say, I, I asked some people, I'm like, did I miss the report? And they're like, no, there there was no. And one of my colleagues said, he said, I think I know where it came from. He said, I think it came from Emily Hanford at American mm-hmm. Public Media and her reporting. Um, and you know, I'm I'm probably predisposed to take favor with this because I'm a research geek. Uh, and I try to be practical. Like I'm not just geeking out on research to geek out on research. I want the insights. I want the studies that tell me that something is proven. Um, and so uh, the research is so conclusive in that area. I mean, so when somebody says the science of reading to me, the highest level version of that is we want to make sure that what we're doing is absolutely evidence-based, that it is based on, you know, research that says this is the best thing to do for kids and cognitive science was turning away doing that and you know, we mentioned that before but i mean the phonics research predates cognitive science all cognitive science did was validate that we know more about teaching reading to kids than anything else that we teach and within that entire body of research the most conclusive finding is 95 percent of the population needs some form of explicit and systematic phonics instruction to be successful in learning to read. And so you put those two things together and it's simply a recipe on what we need to do. Um, You know, you mentioned the whole language piece and I think where the conversation is now shifting is, it's not just about bringing in systematic and phonics-based instruction when it was not there. It's also looking at everything that you're doing and make sure that everything you're doing, you know, sometimes we, we don't think about any deductive pieces. We don't take off the plate other things. So if we bring in phonics instruction, that's fabulous. But if things like three queuing and other approaches that have been evaluated remain in place, you know, we're only doing a partial implementation there. So I think that's the pain that we're making our way through of just kind of re, you know, reevaluating what's going on. You also talked in some of your materials about the science of expertise yeah, uh, talk about that. Well, and and I started to say when it comes to science, it comes to the science of reading. Everybody's now there's a science of everything. So let me be clear: when <laughs> we use the science of expertise in the book title, that predated the science of reading. So I'm not trying to take their turf. What we're talking about there is the primarily from cognitive research, the decades of study on how people actually make it to expert levels of performance. So as a lot of lay people would know parts of this conversation, like from Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, where he really broadly introduced people to the, you know, the concept of the 10,000 hour rule. Uh, there are some flaws in the way that Gladwell presented it, but kudos to him for scale. He definitely got it out there. Uh, but one of the people that actually did the forward to my book, which was so amazing, was Dr. Anders Ericsson, who unfortunately passed away early on in the COVID. But Anders was the world's leading expert on research around expertise, uh, an editor of the Cambridge Handbook on Practice and Expertise. So he spent his life just traveling around and meeting the highest performing individuals in varying fields, uh, you know, around the globe and really trying to determine, you know, what do they all have in common? Another great book, which was the reason that I wrote my book, Unlocking Student Talent, was Dan Coyle's book, The Talent Code, where he studied what he calls hotbeds of talent, tiny little schools and places that have produced an astronomical number of very high performing individuals. You know, he said that what's the code? How do you break the code and find out what it is that they did? Um, and so he wrote the talent code and it was it was universal. Uh, our book, Unlocking Student Talent, was designed to be the talent code for schools. Uh, because what Coyle found was it was always three things, deliberate practice, 
uh, lots of practice, but not just hitting a ball around, but doing it in certain ways or, you know, whatever field you're in. Um, expert coaching. So the teachers need to be complete masters. And I think that's where the science of reading comes in. It helps us be better coaches so that we can create better practice for kids. And then a motivational aspect wrapped around it. The, the things that really matter. I mean, if you're, you know, if you're growing up in uh, Brazil of the 80s, you were kind of pre-programmed soccer, soccer, soccer. Uh, and, you know, different schools have the things that just kind of, you know, you walk in and they just seep from the pores of what they do. You know that they're committed to science or you know that they're committed to reading or you know something is important there. Uh, and one of the things is deliberate practice is a lot of hard work. So you're not going to do it unless you have a lot of motivational drive. So those three things come together, practicing stuff in the right ways, having an expert teacher or coach that can guide this process, and then having that motivational wrapper around all of it. Because, you know, and what I'm going to quote Anders here, deliberate practice is in and of itself is not enjoyable. It is exhausting. What participants will enjoy is seeing their own growth. Uh, that's what the driver will become. And so you got to wrap it all, all together. Right. It reminds me of the paradigm I think we want for our teachers is expert teachers where yeah. throughout our history, there's been times where we've thought, no, 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 you, you, give them a script, give them a textbook, you know, as long as they can read, as long as they mm -hmm. can speak, as long as they yeah. can control their classroom. Maybe that's the most important thing, right? The behavior piece then it's all going to work. And I think for a while, and I, we had, I had a board member I worked with who I think believed this a little bit, that with computers, maybe we don't need expert teachers anymore. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible paradigm. I don't know if you've read Hargraves and Fullen's uh, professional capital work, but same sort of thing. What we want yep. is professional teachers. We need smart, professional teachers and a, a country, a community that respects that. And obviously we can go from there, pays them well. And, and, but, but a constant professional development, because as you know, the research is changing all the time. Yeah. And you know, if you, you look at John Hattie's research and he talks about the effect sizes, teacher efficacy is way up in there. So I am, I am very much of the, the camp that says I want teachers who are deep thinkers. I want them to know the research. I want them to make the decisions. We know that teaching isn't, I mean, we know that learning is inherently an, an interactive human kind of thing. So I think there are things that computer assisted instruction can do, but they can't do all of it. So yeah, I'm completely with you. In Unlocking Student Talent, we wrote about it as you know, teachers as master coaches. Right. And I actually was just doing a keynote based on some research we've done about literacy acquisition. Uh, and I, I, I used a comparison because I was talking about kids face a rock face and then a mountain. The rock face is the early grade skills you come in. There's a lot. I mean, like the boatload of things kids are going to learn in kindergarten and first grade. You know, that's a peak. But then there's also this mountain of complexity that peaks at seventh grade where we're analyzing and different genres and, and different techniques and crafts. And it becomes very complex. So, you know, I had in my mind this concept of a sheer rock face and a mountain. And at the end of the keynote, what I said is what we want is we want teachers who can be the Sherpa, people that know the journey, people that know what to pack for it, people know where the safe places are, people that know how to mitigate an emergency, you know, and that's what I personally want to support teachers in being the experts of that journey who can navigate huge numbers of kids successfully, even through the most treacherous pathways because they know the path, they know what to bring, and they know what to do in case of emergency. Which brings up the fact that a lot of teachers are dis disillusioned a little bit these days, and they're they're worried about their profession. They're worried about having enough energy and insight to come to work every day. 
what hope can you give teachers? And hopefully there's a little bit of hope in the last uh, 20, 25 minutes that'll keep them in the profession and as important, bring in uh, new young teachers into our field. Yeah. You know, that's a really complex question. I mean, and it's even personal. I mean, I, I say my niece, and you might think someone in pigtails, but my niece is a year and, and, and six months younger than I am. Uh, and she was in the Delaware school system for longer. She retired already. She said, I just, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I think part of it is, I mean, as an administrator, I always felt like I had to be a filter and a buffer. Like I wanted to filter out everything I could keep off my teachers, but then focus them on the stuff that really mattered the most. Uh, and, you know, and that was a challenge and that's gotten harder and harder to do. I get that. But again, for me, it goes back to these insights and offerings that we can help teachers do their job better uh, and then reminding people why they're there. I mean, at the end of the day, they're there for the kids. Um, you know, I was just listening to today on an interview and it was young teachers who are, you know, up for teacher of the year. And I forgot what level it was. And they asked them the same question you asked me, what's your cause for hope? And very quickly, one of the young girls, she said, kids. She's like, kids. She's like, that's why I'm here. Uh, and so I think, you know, getting back to why we're here and getting back to just affirming to ourselves, this is a noble profession. I mean, teachers are teaching is a calling. Uh, we don't always get all financial rewards, but, uh, you know, we may not get all the accolades, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's just the kids uh, right there with you or with you or five years later. I mean, I've had, I mean, I taught high school for a while and I had one kid said, I know I was a royal pain in your butt. He's like, I was just an absolute jerk, but you were good about it and you took care of me. It's those notes and those messages. I mean, I've got a, I've got a former student who runs a children's book festival now and she's a commentator on NPR. And, you know, she'll ping me when things come out. She's like, you changed my life. Huh. You know, there's no balance in someone's retirement account that can quite equal that on some level. Yeah. So, you know, let's look for those things and and just try to let them feed us as much as they can because they will. Uh, and it makes a difference. And, and it's it's noble. It's noble what we do. Yeah. What do you see? Obviously, this is the future question now, um, especially in your work with Renaissance. And I don't mean to typecast it as being star, but that's that's the experience I have with with Renaissance. Are there new things? Is it tweaks or what do we see as the future of of assessment, especially online assessment, you know, web based assessment, digital assessment that we can look forward to, um, you know, in the next five, 10 years? synergies and efficiencies. I mean, I think that that's where it's going. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you, I mean, you, you mentioned Accelerated Reader, original product 86, Star uh, was 96, but also we've gone through a lot of acquisitions. So we now have a teaching platform called Nearpod. We have an early grades foundational reading practice called La Lila. We've got Freckle, which does ELA and math, science and social studies. But it's not just about having an assessment and having a practice program. It's about making them work together. You know, the assessment can be the starting point to the practice program. What's going on in the practice program can get fed back in and give you a better picture. Uh, and that's what everybody is demanding right now. And if you look at the industry, that is what's happening. There is consolidation going on. And, and I liken it to, you know, the concept of synergy. One plus one can be more than two. Uh, that when you can get things to work closer together, that the assessment points right to a practice activity that a kid can do, or the assessment points you to a lesson that you can use. Uh, you know, the the thing I, I mean, teachers eat up so much time planning. I mean, just plan, plan, plan. And then we always want more groups and, and that's hard to do. So we just launched a thing where our assessment points right to lessons in Nearpod. Oh, here's a skill within range of kids. Here's a lesson you could like deploy immediately. Uh, and those, those efficiencies are going to get better and better. And what I hope it does is 
it takes a lot of the managerial planning kind of tasks off the table for teachers so that they can do what they do best, what they love the most, and what a computer can never do, which is that human interaction piece, uh, because they're freed up from some of the managerial kind of stuff. And that's coming, and that, that's coming quick. Gene, uh, where can people find your work and uh, more about Renaissance? Yeah, simply go to renaissance.com. You can visit there, uh, particularly renaissance.com forward slash webinars. You can see what we're doing out there. Uh, forward slash performing will give you our uh, longitudinal studies on um, impacts and learning loss. And forward slash focus skills uh, is a free tool. It's available to all schools. You don't have to be a customer of Renaissance. But what it does is it takes the standards of each state, unpacks them, and identifies the absolutely most essential ones. Uh, because that's where we find most schools are that they're getting growth. That's where they're focusing. They can't catch kids up on everything. But we can tell you, here are the absolutely essential skills for grade three. And if you get these things done in grade three, they'll be ready for everything in grade four. Uh, so at renaissance.com forward slash focus skills with a dash between the two. We, um, you know, it's a free tool for everybody. You don't have to be a Renaissance customer. You can go there. There's a little video walks you through. And, uh, and I mean, we've had teachers, uh, school districts have planned everything around it. One teacher walked to me. She said, focus skills changed my life. <laughs> I said, really? She's like, I was just overwhelmed. Too much stuff. But when you could focus me and tell me this is the way you can make the biggest difference for kids. That click that worked that I could do. Right. Anything for uh, for Gene? Any social media or anything like that? That's sure. Oh, at Gene Burns on Twitter, that kind of stuff. I'm on LinkedIn. We're doing more and more events there, learning right. about that. Uh, and then most of it's facilitated through the webinars with the company, and they all go on all the social media things as well. So, um, yeah, I, I'm out there. We'd love to hear from you. That's great. We'll put all this in the show notes. I always like saying that. That's a typical yes. podcast thing. Very to say. formal. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, Gene, thank you so much. Thanks for your time today. We really appreciate it. And all goes well. We'll have you up here in New Hampshire at some point and maybe talk to you again on another podcast. I would love that. Thank you. Great. And for more information on NHASCD, head to our website, nhasd.org. And of course, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Don't forget Jim Knight coming to the Craponi Center in Concord, January 26th. Register at our website. We encourage you to become a member uh, while you're at the website as well. Our mission at NHASCD is to serve as a catalyst for conversation and action to inspire excellence in teaching, learning, and leading. I'm Bill Carroz, the co-executive director for NHASCD. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time for NHASCD Spotlight. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.